You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's word today. So not only did Pastor get someone wonderful to lead us in worship, he got someone wonderful to share the word with us this morning. His last name should sound familiar. We have Anthony uh, Vonaria with us here today. I also want to acknowledge his parents, Neil and Kathy Vonaria, who are with us here today. Yes. We definitely want to... Uh, Yes, Michelle gave us an update on them last week, and uh, we just pray that God blesses their efforts in Sicily. So please welcome Anthony Vonaria. Good morning. Good morning. Yep, my parents are here today, and um, they're already disappointed. They, I think they thought I was bringing my, uh, my son. <laughs> the grandchild, which is why they came here today. Uh, but he got up more often than we thought he might last night. And so my wife uh, stayed up with him so I could be here today and, and still be mostly conscious with you guys as we go through the scriptures. Uh, yeah, I am the son of missionaries, Neil and Kathy Vonaria. Uh, for a little background on them, they translated the New Testament in Papua New Guinea, and now they work with refugees in Sicily. I honestly don't work with them anymore. Uh, I'm doing something of my own now, but I, I can't talk about it on live stream. But if you have questions, I'll be hanging out for the coffee, and I'd be happy to explore that with you guys. Now, since I can't talk about myself, which is hard to do, admittedly, uh, I'll talk about something else that's near and dear to my heart, which is the Great Commission. And, um, you know, I could flip open to Matthew 28, but uh, I think that leaves really a lot out of the picture. And so in favor of trying to get a a bigger sense of maybe God's old commission. I, I want to look at one of my favorite Great Commission moments and then another one that's a little older. And I'm doing it in that order because it will save us time and we'll have, uh, we'll, we'll have plenty of time to get out of here for lunch. So if you'll open with me to Exodus 19. Starting in verse 1, going through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for, from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. You know, I mumble over that every time I read that because why is Moses repeating himself? Anyways, I know God picked him. I won't, I won't speak against him. And they encamped in the wilderness. Oh, a little bit. I guess I did. Too late. Forgive me. And they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. He's repeating himself again. While Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is an introduction. This is really important. It's, it's not my own introduction. This is God's introduction. He's introducing himself by way of what he has done. That is how he can be known. And we have to pay attention here. What has God done? What is the recent, really uh, important history for Israel? They've just come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, what do we got? Anybody read Exodus or seen Prince of Egypt? The Disney film? <laughs> yeah, okay. At least the Disney film. Uh, we have the ten plagues, right? And those ten plagues are reminiscent of the ten utterances in the creation account. So creation is made in seven days, and it culminates in the Sabbath. But God speaks ten times. And creation tracks from it's dark and there's light, and it culminates in the making of man in a Sabbath. In Egypt, 
ends in darkness and the death of the firstborn. God is showing himself as sovereign over creation by its terrifying and wonderful deconstruction. God is flexing on the gods of the world. They're not gods that are sovereign over the matter, over matter. Yahweh is. And this is who is speaking. But there's another tremendous moment. And actually, it's, it's the first time. Uh, it's not in my notes, so I'll kind of skip it. Okay, I'll, I mentioned it. But it's really the first, first time we get in an explicit statement of the kingdom. Any guesses? It's in the Song of the Sea. When Israel passes through the Red Sea. And it, and it culminates with a verse that says, God will reign. And, and, and that, that verb for he will reign is, is the same root for a kingdom. And it, it's a promise of a hope of God restoring his rule to creation. But in the Exodus, in that passing through the waters, it, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that in the same way God parts the waters when, when he begins his creation of the world. And he makes space to begin making room for man, for, for, for new creation. And so as Israel goes through that waters, it's, it's a hearkening. It's bringing them back to a time before time when the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And God makes them anew. And this is what God calls to mind when he's addressing Moses, right? He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Right from the outset, before we get into this commission that I love in Exodus 19, we have to understand, we have to take this moment to remember who is speaking to us. This is a God that is sovereign over creation, right? But he's also a God who is not abandoning it. He is a God that makes new. We really have to keep that in mind. John didn't write, for God so hated the world, he sent his son to take the punishment and the wrath so that the rest of us could just escape. No, for God so loved the world. That's true in John 3, and it's true in Exodus 19. Picking up in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And this calls to mind, again, uh, this, is a, this is a great analogy that I'm, I'm totally ripping off from someone else, but we didn't really have numbers in Scripture, not the book of Numbers, but numbers marking chapter and verse until maybe the 15th century, 13th century, 12th century, people started playing around with it. And so the way you'd reference other verses or other scriptures was to allude to them with language. So you'd, you'd borrow the language. And here God says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And here God brings them back to Genesis 12:3 when God is speaking to Abraham and he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. My dad had a professor who once told him that church history ends uh, or begins in Genesis 12. So in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you get this uh, really awesome account of creation and then this, this sad account of its, of its fall into chaos. And, and what will God do? What will the God of creation do? Is he going to abandon it? No, that's not his character. He says to Abraham, you know what? I'm going to fix this. I will bless all peoples through you. And now God is reminding Israel, don't think I forgot about that. He's Yahweh. I am that I am. He's faithful. He is still going to bless all peoples. And they are going to be a part of this. How is he going to do it? How is he going to do it? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God never called Israel to have an exclusive relationship with Yahweh. Think about that for a moment. I mean, I, I don't know about you, uh, but growing up, I was confused about the law, you know, and it was, it was different, and it, it, it distinguished Jews from everybody else. And I, I'm a Gentile, and we have that whole thing going on in Acts where Paul's like, I mean, Peter says, no, I can't, I can't eat unclean things. And God says, well, don't call unclean what I've made clean. Is, is God changing up? Is he, he says, first, hey, we've got to do it in this little way. Okay, now suddenly, all right, kumbaya, everybody can come in. Um, that's a heresy. Marconian got into that, if you know who he is. Uh, so never mind. Right? But, but it's, it seems like you could end up there. You could be like, well, I, it's hard to avoid. But that's if we're not paying attention. It is explicitly clear, explicitly, that all of Israel are to be priests, not just the Levites. And what, what do priests do? What do priests do? They facilitate relationship between God and people. God is making a nation of priests to save nations. That is what Israel was called to. So to put it simply, again, God does not hate the world. He loves it so much, he has purposed, intended. It is his mission to bless all peoples through his people. Now, I, you know, I lied in the, in the, the staff meeting earlier. I said that I was going to get to Exodus 32 as well, and I'm actually going to pass over that. But it's, it's worth noting here uh, very briefly that if you're, if you're familiar with this account, uh, Moses has this conversation with God. Israel agrees to the covenant. Moses goes up the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and anybody know? It wasn't in the Prince of Egypt. Right? The golden calf. And it's, I, I, forgive me, but I, I love asking people, who's your least favorite character in Scripture? Or like one that just confuddles you. And a lot of people say uh, Aaron, or uh, not Aaron, sorry. I say Aaron. They say David, sometimes Solomon. But really, Aaron drives me nuts. I used to think, why did he make this golden calf? How stupid could you be? And now I feel a little bad for saying that because God kept him around even after that episode. Again, I don't want to be too judgy. Uh, but yeah, that's weird. That's, I think you went wrong there. And, and if we're really careful about how we read that, and, and I'm taking this, so normally, you guys must be a good church, because I really, uh, normally I like to talk about this, and I think this is incredibly important for the church in America to understand right now, but um, I really feel like the Lord uh, okayed me going a different direction. But Moses goes up, he comes down, they've made this golden calf, and if you pay attention to their language, they identify the gods, plural, that led them out of Egypt in one body. And in, and in Genesis 35.1, God says to Jacob, go and make an altar to the God who appeared to you. What's going on? Are there more than one God? Of course not. You know, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet, we see very early on in Genesis that there is more than one person within the Godhead. In fact, this was considered orthodox belief in Judaism until after the whole Christian movement erupted. And that became very problematic because the claim that a man was God walking around wasn't foreign. That's not new in the Bible. And so suddenly it had to become a, oh, you know, we kind of have to get rid of that. And there's, in fact, there is move, there's a movement within rabbinic Judaism now, or not rabbinic Judaism, scholarly Judaism, uh, with 
with scholars who, who do believe in God, uh, trying to return back to this idea that within Yahweh there's at least two persons, and, and some thought maybe even more, maybe three. And so, so listen to the language. In, in Exodus 32, they've identified gods that led them out of Egypt in one body, and then they say, tomorrow we will hold a feast to who? Yahweh. They know God's story. They know God's mission. They know God's name. And they still got it wrong. The terrifying thing about that account is not how much they got wrong, it's how much they got right. That's scary. We can do the same thing. We can say, yeah, I know Jesus. I know his story. I know his mission. And we can still take him and fashion him in a form that's more comfortable for us. And when we do that, we're not making a replacement for God. We are, in fact, destroying ourselves. Because humans, and we're going to get into this, are made for God's presence. And instead, we're saying we're making another object, an image, an idol. That's what an idol is. An idol is an image. We're making an image where a presence or a spirit will rest. In that, in that one act, we're doing two things. First of all, we're trying to sit in God's chair by making an image. And in the second act, we're destroying our humanity. But that's not the sermon for you guys today, apparently. So, um, but it's worth noting. It's worth noting. So let's back up. Let's back up to another commission. And, and, and this, will, this really anchors into the idolatry too. But is, is this the first time that God has said, okay, I'm, I'm going to use this people to bless all nations. Is this a new thing? It isn't. It isn't a new thing. So let's take a look at Genesis 1, 27. And you, you probably are familiar with this off the top of your head. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. So in Genesis 1, we see God making man in his own image. But what on earth does that mean? I remember when I asked this question in Bible college, I got different answers from different professors. And I heard about an Augustinian view. I heard about another Indian view and probably a third Indian view. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know how to take that through me in Scripture. How, how, do I, how do I wrap my head around this in a way that, that translates and so let's take a look at Genesis 2, and hopefully this will make it a little more concise. Genesis 2, 7, we get a picture of God making a person, Adam. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Put your hand in front of your face, breathe. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need a mint, except you. I saw you taking a mint earlier. I should have come grab one of those. But you can feel that, right? It's a force that moves but cannot be seen. This is exactly the way Jesus speaks about the Spirit in John 3. You see the effects of the wind. We have to understand, or or not understand, begin to see a, a relation between the Logos. As the Word became flesh, we too close the Word with our flesh. The Spirit of God. Twice. And this isn't Again, this isn't, this isn't New Testament theology. This is Old Testament truth. I love this twice. Job and his friends connect the breath in man's lungs with the Spirit of God. Now, for those of you who are uh, astute readers of the Old Testament, you'll knew, know that ruach is a word for, for wind and spirit, and that it's actually not used in Genesis 2-7. God is breathing into Adam, and, and the word ruach doesn't appear there. So how, do, how does Job understand this? And, and Job writes this, As long as my breath is in me, and this is the sound sacrilegious, but I'm not saying it. He's saying it. And the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. 
What a thing to say. I mean, you want to talk about a Pentecostal, <laughs> right? He was imbibing the Spirit of God. That's how he saw himself as living. And it's not just Job. King David, when he's asked the high priest, right, he says, hey, do you have bread for my men? I'm, I'm on this big special mission. That's in The Chosen, by the way. Um, but it's also in the Bible. Uh, and, and, and the priest asks a really funny question. He says, well, what about the young men? You know, have they been sleeping around? And David says, of course not. Their vessels are pure. They're containers, the bodies of the young men. He speaks of them as cups made to house something. Jeremiah, he's going off. He wants to insult an evil king. He says, you are a broken pot. This is Jeremiah 22, 28. You are a broken pot, a vessel no one cares for, a person who is no longer fit for his purpose. Jesus affirms this same view when he's arguing with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 24 through 26. Right? The Pharisees are talking about the cleanliness of things you sit on, you drink, you touch, washing your hands, all that. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He translates a conversation about the purity of a vessel that we use on the outside to the purity of the human vessel. I like how the King James puts this in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul isn't being original here, even though it's beautiful. He's rendering it eloquently, but he's demonstrating a keen understanding for his Bible. It's there in the Old Testament. Men were made as vessels. In fact, there's this uh, story that I can, I can probably indulge in quickly, but um, uh, the story goes that a, um, a, a, a rabbi, he's a famous rabbi, he's an incredible teacher, and he goes from town to town teaching. He's a little bit like Jesus, except he has a mule, so a little more fluent probably. And as he's coming to a town, he sees a guy working in the field, and uh, uh, he goes over to talk to the guy, and when the guy turns around, he thinks, man, that guy is just hideous. And so he, he asks the, the servant wearing the field, he says, excuse me, excuse me, is everybody in this town as, ha- having a vessel as ugly as yours? And the servant of the field says, I don't know, you can ask the one who made my vessel. And the rabbi falls off his horse or his mule and, and asks for forgiveness. This has long been recognized that people were made to house the Spirit of God. And I, I can't resist, one of my, this was one of the professors who really started to open my eyes to how the Old Testament. Uh, comes into the new, and now God really is a faithful God. Uh, in, in Mark twelve seventeen, Jesus is asked a question, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar, right? And just so you understand how integral the image of God is to understanding Jesus' view, and, and really a biblical view of scripture, Jesus says, well, bring me a coin, right? And they bring him a coin, and he says, whose image and word is on it? And they say Caesar. So he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's? Whose image and coin? Whose, whose word do you bear? Whose image do you bear? God's. So he's saying, go ahead, give see the coin. I don't care. But give your life. Give your body. Give your person to God. Simply, and, and I think this is a definition we can take with us and, and through the, the second or the first commission into the second and third is to be made in the image of God is to embody God. We are made 
be filled with his spirit. And then what do they do with that? <laughs> I mean, what a lofty thing. It's like God breathes into them, and then what's the plan? Where do you go from there? Well, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. At face value, this is really confusing if you've been paying attention in Genesis 1. Should mankind be fruitful and multiply, like God first said to them, or should mankind work and keep the garden, like God says in Genesis 2? I think we've probably all had this moment at some point where you make a mess and your mother says, clean it up, and your dad says, go to your room. It's like, ah, I can't do either now, because those are different things. So how are we supposed to do that? Keep the garden and be fruitful and multiply. Well, it's, it's pretty simple. Man is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill all the earth by working and keeping the Garden of Eden. This is the first great commission. Eden, which means delight, and in some sense is a seedbed for the kingdom of God, isn't meant to stay tucked away in some hidden corner of creation. Rather, God purposes that Eden should grow, and he entrusts it to Adam and Eve, that by working it and keeping it and multiplying, they bring Eden to creation. This command is echoed in Numbers 3, 7 through 8. When speaking to a new line of priests, God commands that they keep and work the service of the tabernacle. In other words, priests are made to imitate the work and life of Adam and Eve. It's really, I mean, it's fascinating when you think about it. Think about Cain and Abel. Why, after the fall, are they still fulfilling a priestly function? We, we, we don't have the, the, the law from Moses yet. And, and still, they're doing this priestly thing. They're bringing offerings to God. In fact, Cain gets so jealous about Abel's offering being accepted, he kills him. But look at that. They are priests, even in their fallen nature. It's their identity. And here, really, we see how corrupt the priesthood becomes in them. They're sons of the first priest, and the priesthood falls so low that it, it literally consumes itself. Cain kills Abel. In the same way, when you make an idol, you destroy your humanity. That's exactly what happens there. It's self-destructive. God doesn't say you can't make idols because he's vindictive and an egomaniac. No, he says you can't make idols because you're supposed to be the place where I dwell. And it destroys you when you do. So, a person restored to the presence of God has a priestly purpose. At this point, recognize that God's call for Israel to be a nation really isn't a novelty. It's a renewal. God does not abandon his creation. He will make it new. He will make it new. And so he's being faithful. He's restoring a group of people to their God-given human purpose. His vision, his good plan for creation, is not defeated by Adam's sin. God will prevail, and he will do it his way. So let's recap real quick before we come into the final Great Commission. The sovereign God of creation is not abandoning the world. In response to the fall, to brokenness and sin, he is restoring his presence to a unique group of people. And this unique group of people who are restored to his presence now live with his purpose to bless all peoples. Bottom line, being restored to God's presence means we live with his purpose. God has purpose to bless all peoples, so we who have his presence live for that purpose. Let's come into Acts now. And I realize, I'm, I, I kind of lied, I'm not jumping into Matthew 28. But remember when Jesus says in, in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They're receiving power for a purpose. You know, actually that root word there for being 
his witness is uh, martureo, and that's actually where we get the word martyr from. Martyrs were early witnesses to God. So here in Acts 1.8, Jesus calls us to be his martyrs, to be his witnesses, like Revelations 12. In fact, I have, well, not this ring. Uh, my other wedding ring broke. This is a new one. But uh, me and my wife have inscribed on our wedding rings, unto death. And it's not a reflection of our relationship with each other, but a relationship rooted in God. For they despised not their lives even unto death. Right? And how do they overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. We are victorious even unto death because it's what we were made for. I'd like to share a story with you. Now, I can't talk too much about what I do on, on live stream, but um, I think it helps sometimes to see the state of creation um, where, where Christians aren't at work. And we have an idea, you know, we can look around here, but what does it look like in the rest of the world? And, and so I'd like to share with you guys a story of somebody who was trying to fulfill a priestly purpose, but was trying to do it without Christ. And because of that, he could not be restored to the image of God. And, and this is what his story is. His name is Juhayman al-Ataibi. He was born September of 1936 in the heart of Saudi Arabia, in the province of al Qasim. Consistent with its centrality, the province is still known for its deep religious observance, matched by its plethora of palms, juicy dates, tangy grapes, sweet lemons, and royal pomegranates. And yes, they do have those in Saudi Arabia. Juhayman's story is woven together like the tent he was born in, like the tents of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a child, he especially looked forward to evenings where the whole extended family would gather. Wrapped in the warm throng of familiar voices, Juhayman sat aglow listening to gossiping aunts, arguing uncles, and laughing cousins. After the meal, his father, Muhammad ibn Saif, would call Jahaman to come sit by him. A hush would follow. The mounting anticipation interrupted only by the whispering wind. Cold desert nights, cardamom coffee, mixed with raspy tellings of Antara, a great warrior poet, born a slave, who overcame for the sake of love, winning not only his bride, but a whole people. From an early age, he learned how his grandfather, Sultan bin Bayad, had fought in the Battle of Sibelia against King Abdulaziz of the House of Saud. Shunning Western influences and technology as destroying and compromising the faith of the Prophet, Jehaman's grandfather and his coalition charged modern machine guns on the backs of camels. They were massacred, and they were the last to do so. They gave their lives for God, that others might know him as they did. These threads strung together by great dunes, vast silences, and dawn prayer came together to instill in young Jehaman a profound sense of purpose. Years later, frustrated by the nation's continuing departure from the tenets of Islam, Jehaman led a small protest for which he was imprisoned. That night, locked away in a cellar, he received a vision of the rightly guided one, the Mahadi, the promised messianic figure who will rid the world of injustice and establish the kingdom of God. And so he declared what God had made known to him, that his brother-in-law, Muhammad Abdullah al-Qahtani, was that very redeemer. Less than a year later, in 1979, the two of them, leading hundreds of armed men, stormed the great mosque of Mecca, calling the nation to repentance. They held out for two weeks before Saudi special forces, with the assistance of French commandos, reclaimed the compound. Jehaman lost the battle, but he won the war. The capture of Islam's holiest site led King Khaled to implement a stricter enforcement of Islamic law. He gave the guardians of the Quran more power over the next decade and encouraged and strengthened the ulama, the religious police. Saudi Arabia returned to Allah with renewed vigor. And for this, Jehaman al-Ataibi paid with his life, and he did so willingly. 
After his capture, he was sentenced to death by beheading. His last words, as a good Muslim should be, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Because of an idol, Jehaman gave his life to deny Christ. And today, because many of us refashion God's purpose, we cling to life to do the same. But Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here's probably the most important word in this verse, that. So often we relish that first half. I am a chosen person. I am a royal priest. I am a holy nation. I am a person of God's possession, full stop. But that's not what's written. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he writes in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. In this same letter, Paul says that the presence of God is in his socks, in his flesh. When he writes that we are earthen vessels, so many times I, I see people go a, a little, and I'm nitpicking here, I'm nitpicking, and, and, and I admit I'm a flawed person, I, I could be wrong about this, but we say that God shines despite us. No, no, no. God does not shine despite you. He shines through you. Because he has ordained that from all time. In Genesis 1, that's how it started. And he is faithful. And thus we are saved by grace because he is faithful and comes to dwell in us. Bottom line, we are God's priestly nation. And our restoration to the presence of God came 2,000 years ago when we were delivered from bondage to death and sin. And now we serve by reconciling the world to its king who is Christ. Understand that Jesus' death on the cross is not simply a ticket to escape to heaven. Rather, the victory of the cross empowers us for sacred service. I love being a Pentecostal. But if we profess to be people of the presence, we must be people of his purpose. And Paul writes to Timothy saying that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. The cross is not where your story ends. It's where it begins. And this holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And so Ephesians, he says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what is that work? Well, at an individual level, it will look different for each one of us. But as his people, we don't have to guess. What was the promise to Abraham for? Was Abraham promised heaven? And was Israel really delivered from Egypt for freedom? We hear that a lot. And certainly, I mean, did Christ proclaim the kingdom for comfort? We know that's not true. No, Abraham's promise was offspring like the stars. You know, and I've seen the math worked out for this on Reddit, so maybe it's a little suspect. But it is a very safe bet that there are more stars in the universe than there have been utterances of all of mankind in its existence. I hear preachers say sometimes that hell will be fuller than heaven, and they might be right, but I know that God is faithful, and that 
Abraham will have offspring like the stars. And was Israel really delivered for Egypt for freedom? No. No, God says, let my people go that they may serve me. And yes, we have freedom in service to God. Death and sin no longer reign in our lives, but we have a function, a job. And Christ, of course, proclaimed the kingdom because he rules that all families of the earth would be blessed. Man made in God's image, filled with God's spirit, renewed for God's purpose, the victory of the cross given to mankind at Pentecost. Genesis 12, 3. And you, all families of the earth, shall be blessed. God's purpose for you could be summed up so. And if this is the only thing you take home today, it's enough. God intends to bless all peoples through you. And what kind of God do we have when that's what he glories in? God is glorified when others are reconciled to him. That's what he relishes. That's what exalts him. I'd like to invite up Scott to bring us out. I, I um, intentionally avoided the Great Commission that we're all very familiar with, but I think it's an apt closing for us today. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. I'd like to also invite up the leaders to pray for anyone who would like prayer regarding your priestly service. And... Um, Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.